You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Sometimes it's true that obedience to the Lord means that you're going to go from the frying pan into the fire. It is seldom, seldom that obedience to the Lord in a difficult situation is an easy thing to do. And it may mean that you find yourself in a difficult situation and you know what needs to be done, and to obey the Lord is to put you from that situation into an even more difficult situation, to go out of the frying pan and jump literally into the fire. And if you are a person who is committed to obedience only so long as it is comfortable, or if you are the type of person who is committed to obey only so long as there is something in it for you, or if you are the type of person who is committed to obey the Lord only when it means your own personal security, then you will never make that jump from the frying pan into the fire because you will find some reason or some way to be disobedient and to justify it for your own comfort or for your own gain or for your own security. And the apostles learned in Acts chapter 5 that obeying the Lord may sometimes mean that you go from a difficult situation into a more difficult situation and that you are put in the more difficult situation simply because you were obedient. But... If you are a person who is committed to principle, then you will obey the Lord when it is inconvenient, uncomfortable, painful, and costs you literally everything. If you have trained yourself and your members to be obedient to righteousness by a continual yielding of yourself to righteousness, then you will obey based upon principle, not upon comfort or ease or painlessness. And the apostles had learned that they must obey God rather than men. And they also learned that by obeying God rather than men, sometimes their situation could grow even darker and even worse. We're in Acts chapter 5, and it's been a couple weeks since we left the apostles in their story. And we left them kind of in a precarious predicament. They're standing in front of the council, which Peter and John have been there before. But this is new for the rest of the apostles. The other ten apostles are there as well, and they're standing before the council. And you may remember what landed them in such hot water. Remember back in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, that many signs and wonders were being done at the hands of the apostles to such an extent that they would bring the sick out into the streets and lay them on pallets so that the shadow of Peter might pass over top of them. Peter and John and the rest of the apostles, because of their ability to perform wonders and miracles and to heal people, have gained such a following and have become so notorious and so popular with the people that the Sadducees, who used to have the adoration of the people, are kind of in an ire. And they're jealous, verse 17 tells us of chapter 5. They rose up and they were filled with jealousy because Peter and John have gained such a following. So they do what you always do when you're jealous with somebody. You attack them and they throw them into prison. And they are there a night, well, half of a night really, because... You remember that in the middle of the night an angel appeared and somehow opened the door, somehow led the apostles out, unbeknownst to the guard or anybody around them, and gave the apostles the instruction, go right back into the temple and there teach the people. 
So about daybreak, they make their way into the temple. They begin to teach the people. And meanwhile, on the other side of town or on the other side of the temple, the Sanhedrin is meeting there. And they call for these men to be brought in. And somebody runs off to fetch them. And they get to the prison. And they find that the prison doors have been locked securely. And the guards are standing at their posts. But there's nobody inside. And he comes back and reports that to the Sanhedrin. And the captain of the guard and the high priest, they begin to scratch their head and say, what is becoming of this? They can't explain to it. Now, the Sadducees are committed to a worldview that does not allow for the sovereignty of the intervention of God. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe that God in any way intervenes in the affairs of men. These are the priests of the people who believe this. So while they're pondering all of this, somebody else rushes in and says to them, the men that you threw into prison are now out in the temple preaching. So the high priest gives the order to the captain of the guard, go fetch him. They go to the temple to fetch these twelve apostles. And they show up, and the text says up in verse 25 and 26, the apostles proceeded back with them, totally unafraid, without any force. The, the, the captain of the guard really couldn't do anything forcefully or violently to the apostles because they had such a following among the people. And the people would have stoned the captain of the temple guard and his officers. So the apostles go willingly back into the Sanhedrin, And when they arrive back in the Sanhedrin, the high priest questions them and says, we gave you orders not to teach anymore in his name, but you filled the city with their teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood on our heads. And so Peter turns around and tells them the same thing that he's been telling them since Acts chapter 2. His blood is on your heads. You crucified the Lord, the Son of glory, the Son of God. You crucified Him. You put Him to death. It rests at your doorstep and at your feet. And now, because of your guilt in this and to the rest of your sin, you need to repent. And that's basically the message that Peter gives to the high priest there. Because he has exalted the one whom you crucified to his right hand and made him both Lord and Christ. And of course, the implications of that is that this one who has been exalted to the right hand of God is coming again in swift judgment. And he will mete out judgment on all those who will not obey the gospel to repent and to turn for him to him for forgiveness. And Peter gets done with his speech in verse 32. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who will obey Him. Peter begins his talk with obedience. He ends his talk with the subject of obedience. And his point is this. We have obeyed the Lord. Now they had done everything that the Lord had told them to do. When the council threatened them in Acts chapter 4, it said, teach no more in this name. Peter said, we have to obey God rather than men. And he went out and he taught in that name. Well, that put him in prison again. And then they were delivered, and the angel told them, go into the temple. And Peter and the rest of the apostles were obedient to that. But that just put them in even more hot water, because when they get back before the Sanhedrin, and Peter gives his defense, look down at verse 33. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Out of the frying pan, right into the fire. Delivered from prison and threats, put in prison again, delivered from prison, and now all because he has been obedient to what the Lord wants him to do, these 12 men stand before this Sanhedrin of 71 people and you can feel the tension and I bet you could feel the waves of hatred because they're cut to the quick by what Peter says and they intend to kill them. But you're going to see how God sovereignly, miraculously, in another way, using a most unexpected source, delivers these 12 men from death. The first thing I want you to notice is the danger that they are in. It says when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. 
Now, if you're sitting there and you're listening to this whole thing unfold as Peter is giving his defense, I wonder if toward the end of this, Peter and the rest of the apostles were able to sort of read the crowd. You can do that. When you're standing in front of a crowd, you can read them. You can tell who's paying attention, who's mad at what you're saying, who likes what you're saying, who's resisting what you're saying, who's about ready to fall asleep, who's wide awake. You can read a crowd. I think Peter and the rest of the apostles were able to sit there and read the crowd. They knew what this was going to cost them. And I think that in the back of their minds, like if I'm allowed to use a little sanctified imagination, I think in the back of their minds, they were saying to themselves, we'll be lucky if any of the twelve of us get out of here alive. We'll be really lucky if we get out with just a beating. But we'll be lucky if we get out of here alive. I think that they had resigned themselves to that. But they're committed to obey God rather than men. And if that means being in the fiery furnace, then that's where you place yourself. And you just trust the Lord to deliver you. Now, why were the Sadducees so cut to the quick? I mean, listen, folks, it's just a gospel presentation, right? We have a a one awards night or a a pit day or a Grand Prix or something like that, and unsaved people come in here, parents of kids that come to our Awana ministry, and we present the gospel to them. We don't get any kind of response like that. What makes this different? Why were the Sadducees grinding their teeth at the apostles, cut to the quick so much that they intended to kill these 12 men? You know why it is? Peter has affirmed the sovereignty of God. They hate that. Sadducees don't believe that God is sovereign. Peter has affirmed that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The Sadducees hate that. They didn't believe in a literal Messiah. Peter has affirmed that God works in the affairs of men. They hate that. Peter has put the blood of Christ on their hands, on their head, at their doorstep, something that has continually angered them. And he has done it again right here in front of everybody. And they hate that. And Peter has affirmed the resurrection of Christ from the dead, a fact that they know to be true, but they will not accept because they do not believe in resurrections. So every major tenet of Sadducee belief has been refuted and attacked by Peter. And so here they stand having their whole religious system exposed for the fraud that it is. And these 12 common stupid fishermen and tax collectors and zealots dare stand before the priests of the land and assault their theology. That would infuriate you, wouldn't it? Gospel presentation it is, but it's far more than just that. Peter's talking to the very men who've orchestrated the death of the Son of God. And he says, you're guilty and you need to repent. But they come to the conclusion that it's easier to kill these 12 men than it is to repent. It would be better to kill them than to just turn from their sin. Every belief system has been assaulted. Peter has done it persistently and relentlessly. He has given the same message over and over and over again. And yet it says that they were cut to the heart. You see, really, that's the issue at play. They were pierced to the heart with what he did. The word that Luke uses to record the the cutting to the heart is kind of a graphic Greek word. It means to literally saw asunder by, by going back and forth. Just cut it in two. That's the word that Luke uses to describe what happened to their heart. And it's an adequate word and an accurate word to describe what the Word of God does to us. Doesn't it do that? It's live and quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And as these men have stood there and heard Peter give to them the Word of God and the truth of God, it has literally dissected their hearts, and these men are vexed. These men are so infuriated with what they have heard that they're motivated to murder 12 men. 
and kill them. That's the danger that they face. Now you'll notice the difference between the response of the Sadducees in Acts chapter 5 and the response of the crowd in Acts chapter 2. When Peter gave his sermon in Acts chapter 2, what did the people do? They said, what must we do, men and brethren? And Peter said, repent, be baptized, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And the people were soft and the people responded and the people came forward in faith. But not these men. In Acts chapter 5, it's a whole different situation. What's the difference between Acts 2 and Acts 5? Is it a different message? It's the same message. You crucified the Son of God. His blood rests at your feet, so you repent and be saved. That's the same message in both chapters. Is it a different type of person in Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 2? No. The audience really is in the same condition. Both men are dead in their trespasses and sins, unable to please God with a heart that is in enmity with God. They're bond, bond slaves to their sin, unable to believe, unable to repent, unable to trust Christ, completely spiritually dead. So there's no difference in the people. There's no difference in the message. So what causes the message to fall on some ears and they respond with faith and obedience to the Gospel and the message falls on a different set of ears and they respond by hardening their heart and continuing in their sin? What's the difference? You already know what it is, don't you? It's the grace of God. That's what it is. If it were not for the grace of God and you and I were sitting at the Sanhedrin, we would do the exact same thing because we're no better than those men who intended to kill the apostles. The difference is that God takes His Word and quickens it to the heart of some. And His sheep hear His voice and they come to Him. That's the difference. And God called out His people in Acts chapter 2. And God was taking the same Gospel. And listen, there's a little known secret here. We'll get to it in Acts chapter 6. He's using this presentation to call out people to Himself as well because we find out in Acts chapter 6 that many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. But here they're resisting it. Here they're ready to kill these men. And God in His grace reached down and touched some in Acts 2. And God in His grace hardened some in Acts chapter 5 for a period of time. And the difference is not in the message. The message is the same. The type of people is the same. The difference is that God was doing a work in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 5, He accomplished His purpose by hardening these men's hearts to the point where they wanted to kill the apostles. That's their danger. Now I want you to look at their deliverance. And it comes from kind of an odd source. Verse 34. After they were cut to the quick or cut to the heart, they intended to kill them. Verse 34 says, A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. So Gamaliel, who is a rabbi, a teacher of the law, stands up. He's obviously one of the Sanhedrin members. And he motions or however they did it, got the apostles put outside so that they could deliberate over this a little bit. That's what they did in Acts chapter 4. They put the apostles out and they discussed, what are we going to do with these men? Gamaliel does the same thing this time, but this time Gamaliel hatches kind of a plan. He, he has an idea, or at least advice, and I don't think that willingly he's trying to deliver the apostles. I think he's just speaking his mind here. Now, Gamaliel's kind of an interesting character. There's something that we know about him from history and from legend. Josephus records a little bit about Gamaliel. Gamaliel was so highly respected that he was given the title Rabban, which is even higher than Rabbi. He was almost legendary in his knowledge and in his abilities. According to tradition, Gamaliel was the grandson of Hillel, who was a, a rabbi who founded a school. Now, Hillel was a, sort of a liberal, a theological liberal. 
and he founded the liberal school of Pharisees. Gamaliel was his grandson, and Gamaliel kind of brought some conservative reforms to the school of Hillel. And according to tradition and history, Gamaliel started his own school for the training of Pharisees and rabbis in the law. And we know from Scripture who one of his pupils was, don't we? Acts chapter 22, verse 3. Paul says, I was trained by Gamaliel. Same Gamaliel mentioned here in Acts chapter 5. So you have a man who started a school. One of his pupils is a young man. At this time, Saul of Tarsus would have been 30 to 35 years old. A young man, notice I said that even being over 30, he was a young man trained in the school of Gamaliel. And so Gamaliel is the Apostle Paul's teacher. And he's respected by the people. And even though the Sadducees would disagree with him theologically, he's so respected by the people that he gains a hearing with the rest of the Sanhedrin. So Gamaliel gives to them sort of two uh, recent incidences in their own history that had been headlines within the lifetime of most of the men on the council that they could relate to. So look what Gamaliel says. He said to the men of Israel, Take care what you purpose to do with these men. For some time ago, Feudus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Now, we don't know anything from history about Theudas. All we know is what's recorded here in Acts chapter 5. Apparently, sometime around the death of Herod, there were all kinds of uprisings. Josephus tells us that. He says thousands of these little miniature uprisings. Theudas was probably one of those. Theudas gained a following of about 400 people. He eventually was killed either in the uprising or he died, and his, his movement just came to nothing. And it just sort of passed into non-existence. The second one is something that history tells us a little bit about through Josephus, who is a Jewish historian. Verse 37, After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. About 6 A.D., after Judah fell and became a Roman, a Roman province, they decided to take a census to count the people and determine how much tax to collect from this new province. So that's why he says in the days of the census, Judas rose up. Because this happened at the time when they started to count people. Now whenever you start counting people to impose a tax, you're always going to run into a few people who don't feel too happy about being taxed. I don't think any of us really enjoy being taxed. Judas was one of those people. This Judas, not to be confused with the other Judases who are mentioned in the Gospels are Judas Iscariot. This Judas started sort of a nationalistic religious revolt. And he claimed that it was high treason to pay tribute to anybody but God because God was their one true king. And he gained sort of a following. And the Romans, after his following started to catch momentum, Josephus says the Romans came in and they destroyed it. They, they literally killed Judas and a lot of his followers and it sort of became a non-issue movement, even though some of his followers continued on, and Judas the Zealot, or, or the, was it Judas that was a Zealot? The Zealot in Jesus' band of, of disciples, he was sort of a next generation, that's the Zealots. They came from this Judas' movement. So their thinking was sort of alive, but it really wasn't an issue. And so Gamaliel just said, look at our recent history. you got two men who rose up, both of them came to following, both of them died, and both of them passed into history unnoticed. What's Gamaliel's point? Just leave him alone. Right? In Gamaliel's mind, he's thinking, here you have this follower of people. They follow this man named Jesus. He rose up. He gained this following. And now he's dead. So history tells us that what's going to happen. These guys are just going to disband and pass into history. You don't want to have the blood of 12 more men on your hands if you don't have to. Just give it some time and 
Gamaliel says, look at down at verse 37. Um, sorry, 38. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. If this plan or if this action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it's of God, you're not going to be able to overthrow them or else you even be found fighting against God. Now that has a ring of, of sound thinking to it. Gamaliel's just giving typical pharisaical advice. He's basically saying, just give us some time. And if God is in it, it'll prosper. If God's not in it, it'll come to nothing because the Pharisees believed that behind everything that was blessed was God's hand. And if it was blessed, then God did it because sovereignly any, anything that lasts is going to be of God. Anything that crumbles and passes into ignominity is going to be of men. So this is the test. If it prospers, then we know God did it. If it didn't prosper, then we know God didn't do it. And if it prospers and you fight against it, here's the real danger. You're going to be found fighting against God. And you don't want to be found fighting against God, do you? Now, Gamaliel's advice literally is taken from Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever in His plans from generation to generation. In other words, if God is behind it, you cannot stop it. Because the Lord is in the heavens and He does what He pleases, and every purpose of His will be accomplished, down to the smallest of details. So why fight against Him? Just do what God has called you to do, and if you resist it, He's going to conquer anyway. And even if every man on the face of the earth were to ally himself against God, God would still be victorious. And so Gamaliel says, just let it be. Give it some time. Let it rest. Now, I mentioned when we were back in Acts chapter 4 that there's the possibility, and I would venture to say probability, that Saul of Tarsus was on the council at this time. We know Saul of Tarsus was trained by Gamaliel. We know he was old enough at this time to be on the Sanhedrin. We know that he was more than theologically uh, and mentally and qu uh, everything qualified to be on the Sanhedrin. We also know that he knew the high priest very well, and we know that he was in Jerusalem at this time. We're only a couple months away from the stoning of Stephen. Not a couple months as in time preaching, but a couple months timeline in the book of Acts away from the stoning of Stephen. And at that time, Saul is with the council giving his agreement to stone the man, Stephen. So we know that he's there. We know that he's with this council at least participating in the activities. And you've got to put yourself in Saul's shoes. Do you notice the difference between how Saul handled this and how Gamaliel handled this threat? Gamaliel just says, let it be. Just leave him alone. Don't do anything to him. Just take a wait-and-see attitude. Did Saul do that? No. I mean, just months later, he's going to the high priest saying, give me documents with your name on it that gives me authorization to round these men up and throw them in prison and kill them. And Saul went house to house persecuting the church. Now, if you're Saul and you're sitting on the council and the whole council basically has come to the conclusion, we're going to kill these men, you've got to be just rubbing your hands, gritting your teeth, thinking, oh yeah, this is our opportunity. And then your mentor stands up. Let's just leave him alone. Leave him alone? Are you kidding me? Do you have any idea what kind of an opportunity we have here? I mean, use a little bit of sanctified imagination. Here you have Saul of Tarsus taking a radically different approach to these men than the man who trained him in the law, Gamaliel. Maybe it's the difference between youth and age. Maybe it's the difference between experience and inexperience. Whatever it is, Saul immediately takes, his, uh, takes a divergent approach from where Gamaliel took these men. Now, they follow Gamaliel's advice, whether it was good or bad. 
And let me ask you this. Do you think Gamaliel's principle here is one to live your life by? See if it prospers. If it prospers, it's of the Lord. If it's not, then it's not. Does that sound wisdom? You know it's not. It's not. It's called pragmatism. You know what pragmatism is? If it works, then it must be good. If it doesn't work, it must be bad. And so you set up this system by which you judge what works and what doesn't work. And if it doesn't seem to work very well, then you jettison it. And if it works really good, then it must be good and God must be in it. That's pragmatism. And that's what Gamaliel is. He's a pragmatist. Just let it go and see how it does. If it prospers, then, hey, God was in it. If it falls, then it wasn't of God. If it's successful and good, then it's spiritual. If it's not successful and not good, then it's not spiritual. If we were to take Gamaliel's measure, we would have to say that the Mormon church with over 10 million members, worldwide growth, that's a phenomenal statistic, and more money than most Fortune 500 companies, is of God because it has existed and prospered long past the death of its founder. If we were to take Gamaliel's advice, we would have to say that the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists, both movements of which have, have prospered long past the death of their founder and continue to grow, that it's of God because it continues on. And so if it continues on, it's of God. If it doesn't, then it's not of God. We would have to say the same thing of Islam, wouldn't we? Since Muhammad is dead and yet his followers continue to increase in number and in power, and they continue to spread all over the face of the globe, do we then say that Islam is of God because it has prospered? And that other things that have fallen to the ground and choked out over the period of time must not be of God? Is this sound advice? It's not, is it? Being a pragmatist is no substitute for being a Bible student. The measure of what is right is not whether it works or not. The measure of what is right is does it measure up to what Scripture teaches. And it may not seem like it would work, and it may not seem like it is, makes sense to us, but we have to say what the Scriptures say we will do. Whether we get what we consider to be results from it or not, we will obey the Scriptures. People have taken Gamaliel's advice and say, man, that's a good life principle. I'm just going to take a wait-and-see attitude to anything. Anytime something comes up, I'm just going to wait and see how it goes out. That's indifference. And listen, indifference with Gamaliel is no commendation. Gamaliel should have known better, shouldn't he? Did he know Psalm 22? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You pierced me, I thirst. All the prophetic references about casting lots for his clothing, Christ. Did he know Psalm 23 about the Lord being his shepherd? Did he know Isaiah 53? He was bruised for our iniquities and by his stripes we are healed. Did he know those prophetic passages that spoke of Christ? Did he know Psalm 16 that predicted the resurrection of Christ? He knew all of these passages. And yet here was a man who could sit here and listen to Peter give an exegesis, an exposition of these passages and see the truth of them for himself and yet he could still say, well, let's see how it works out. If the Christians should have had anybody on their side, it would be Gamaliel. But I don't think he's trying to deliver the Christians. Because if the Sadducees suspected that Gamaliel was on their side, trying to get them out of this hot water, they would have drug him down there and stoned him too. There's something in his advice that they discern to be wise, whatever it is. And so God uses that advice, even though it's bad advice that Gamaliel gives, God uses it to deliver the apostles. So he says in verse 38, I say to you, leave this alone. If it's of men, it will be overthrown. If it's of God, you're not going to be able to overcome it, and you're going to be found to fight against God. So what does he do? Verse 40, they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to teach or speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. This is not the Roman flogging like you would 
you see in crucifixion movies where they they literally strip the flesh off of the victim. This was the Jewish flogging where they would only do 39, not 40. The law allowed for 40. And how they would administer this, it was a whip made of calf skin. And they would apply one-third of the beatings to the front of the individual and two-thirds to the back part of the individual. And while they were whipping them, they would read to them verses out of the Scriptures about discipline and foolishness and these admonition-type verses. So this is what the apostles endure. Maybe it was 39 lashes for each one. Luke doesn't say. It just says that they flogged them. They were allowed to flog them up to 39, up to 40 times, but they only would do 39 just in case they didn't want to miscount and give them one more than the law gave them and break the law. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians, I was flogged five times. I was beaten by the Jews with 39 lashes. So maybe the apostles got five or six or ten. Maybe they got all 39. 39 lashes times 12 people, that's a lot of whipping that was going on before these men left. That's what happens. And Gamaliel sits back and he just watches the whole thing unfold. He's content to let them get whipped as if that's not fighting against God. He's content to let them get threatened as if that's not fighting against God. But he, even in his ill-conceived wisdom, somehow is used by God to deliver these apostles from the hands of death. Look down at verse 41. We've noticed their danger. Second, we've looked at their deliverance. Now I want you to see their perspective. Verse 41, they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. No, you didn't misread that. It's literally what they did. They went on their way from the presence of the council, and they were joyful that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. These men have just been beaten. They've just been scourged. They've just been whipped and threatened. And they leave the presence of the council joyful. I want you to notice that although God delivered them from death, He did not deliver them from suffering. Is that because God is not able to deliver them from suffering? Is He able? certainly is. But did He choose to deliver them from suffering? Was it His will that they not suffer? Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 20, We are called to this. We're called to the suffering Savior. So although God delivered them from death, He didn't deliver them from suffering because He didn't want to deliver them from suffering. He allowed them to suffer something for His name's sake. And they rejoiced in it. Why did they rejoice in it? They were just happy that they had the opportunity to partake and to share in the sufferings of Christ. And although the sufferings of Christ far outstripped any of their sufferings, and even though what they suffered is really only minuscule compared to what Christ endured for them, they counted themselves excited and joyful over the opportunity to share in a little bit of what Christ endured for them. That's a whole other perspective, isn't it? And if that seems odd to you, it's not because they're odd, it's because you're odd. If that seems out of keeping with reality to you, it's because you live in a fantasy land. Not because they do. Listen to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. That's what they were doing. For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James says, Count it all joy when you face various trials. Peter said, To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
Philippians 1.29, Paul said, It has been granted to you both to believe on Him for salvation and to suffer for His name's sake. Suffering is a gift. It's a gift. And I could give you dozens of more passages of Scripture that we never allow to mold our thinking on the subject of suffering. We live in a phenomenal country. I think we live at the best time in the history of the world. I think we live in the best country that the world has ever seen. I think that there's no place I'd rather be living. There's no time in which I would rather be living than right here and right now. I think this is the best. I don't think anything in history compares to what we have here. But there's one blessing that we lack. The blessing of suffering. Think of what suffering could bring us that we miss out on. Think of what persecution would grant us that we never get to taste. The rewards and the blessings... And yet their perspective was, hey, we got to suffer. What a gift. We rejoice over a table full of food, the friends and family, provision of a roof over our heads and clothes on our back. These guys rejoice because they got to suffer. That's a perspective that you and I have a hard time understanding. But my friends, that's the biblical perspective. It's a gift. And we shouldn't resist it. We shouldn't shy away from it. We should be thankful for whatever it is that the Lord brings into our life that He uses to purge us. That's their perspective. Last thing I want you to notice is their perseverance or their persistence. Verse 42, And every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Man, what do you call that but obedient? How do you explain that? Would you continue to do that? Peter and John have been in two trials, in prison for two nights. They've been flogged. They have been threatened. They've received maybe up to 39 lashes, and they have left. And what do they do? They go right back into the temple, right back into the jaws of the lion, the fiery furnace, into the face of death, and continue to do what the Lord has called them to do. They suffer, they rejoice, and they get right back into kingdom work. They don't sit around and throw a pity party and say, why me? Why has God bring this into my life? Why am I the one that gets afflicted with this? Why did He choose for me to suffer? I would have been just as happy to be one of the other Christians and not be an apostle, but He's called me to be an apostle, and here I am suffering for His namesake. And you know what? They get done with their pity party and not feel any better about the wounds on their backs or their front. But instead, they just trust themselves to the sovereign God. They rejoice and they go right back to work. Such is the persistence of the people of God. I couldn't say it any better than Charles Spurgeon. Let me read to you what he said. So shall your testimony be, such that men cannot help seeing it. Never for fear of feeble men restrain your witness. Your lips have been warmed with a coal from off the altar. Let them speak as like heaven-touched lips should do. In the morning sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand. Watch not the clouds, consult not the wind, in season and out of season witness for the Savior. And if it shall come to pass that for Christ's sake and the Gospels you shall endure suffering in any shape, shrink not, but rejoice in the honor thus conferred upon you, that you are counted worthy to suffer with your Lord. Enjoy also in this that your sufferings, your losses, and persecutions shall make you a platform from which the more vigorously and with greater power you shall witness for Christ Jesus. Amen. Friends, do you just obey the Lord and let the chips fall where they may? In a difficult situation, do you do what is right from principle and obey the Lord even if it means that you're going to face the possibility of death? And will you obey Him above all things, above your security, above your comfort, and above your pain-free, painless existence.
Do you obey the Lord to that degree? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the example of these men. Lord, what it would be like to stand in the presence of fire and to see You purge us from everything that distracts our attention and our focus from Christ. We are so grateful, God, for the things that You bring into our lives that conform us to the image of Christ. And I would pray this morning that You would teach us and help us by Your grace to rejoice in all things and to rejoice for all things to give thanks in every situation, no matter what it is, no matter how painful it is, and to be thankful for every situation, and to trust that you are indeed working all things out for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose, that you might conform us into the image of Christ, having having predestined us to be conformed to his image. We thank you for all of that. We pray for your grace to enable us to do that and to be bold witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ in in our lives and in the areas in which we work and minister and live. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.